So good morning. You know, it's funny you wear a suit to church. I, I didn't wear this just to try to be different. But it's funny, when you walk in here with a suit on, people look at you like, you don't come here often, do you? <laughs> but I have a wedding to go to this afternoon, so you got to put up with it. Thank you. You know, they, um, at, at Maple Root, it's become my habit. Actually, wherever I speak, and I've done it here before, too, the first thing I do is ask you, are you reading your Bible? I want to encourage you, whenever I have the opportunity um, to encourage people to, to walk with God, I want to encourage you to read your Bible. Can you imagine living in a society where the Word of God is freely and readily available and not looking into it? You know, life is like an open book test. Don't take the test without opening the book. So I always ask you, are you reading the Bible? But I want to say this morning... You don't need to read the Bible to know that God exists, do you? All you've got to do, especially at this time of year, just look around. Springtime. Everything is bursting forth with life. The, the, the plants that we looked at in the winter and we thought, never will that come back. Now they're blooming beautifully, aren't they? Or just go out on a clear night and look up. Take it in. You can see... The wonder of creation. What do you see when you look up on a clear night? A vast array of stars, all organized. You can almost feel the movement, can't you? Right, just look up and the stars, uh, they're traveling their courses, so to speak, but the earth is really rotating and revolving around the sun. It's got its orbit, and you can almost feel the movement, can't you? David experienced that. Great King David, when he was out in the field as a shepherd, he experienced that. In fact, when he wrote Psalm 19, what are the first words? The heavens, what? They declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. And creation, the testimony of creation is transcultural, isn't it? The next verse in that uh, chapter, Psalm 19, says, There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. And that's wonderful use of language because they don't, make any, they don't use audible words. Creation doesn't use audible words, does it? There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Though they use no audible words. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Some years ago, my wife and I were on a short-term mission trip to Mexico. And it was one of these things we signed up for in a Christian magazine. We didn't know anybody else on the trip. There were people from all different places, all different churches, um, all different uh, parts of the world. And so we were there, and we had our first meeting together in the open air. And I remember just sitting there listening to the music play and looking up at the sky and thinking, God's creation, the testimony of God's creation transcends culture. It transcends language. It's heard everywhere. So, no, we don't need the Bible to tell us that God exists, do we? We do need the Bible, however, to tell us who God is and who we are and how and where we fit into His creation. Don't we want to know that? There are many places in the Bible that tell us that. Psalms is one of them. 
I want to take a few minutes to look at Psalm 8 with you today. It, like other psalms, call us into worship of God. It's a psalm written by King David, just nine verses long, but it delivers a powerful and important message. It's poetry. I'm reading it from the New International Version. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's interesting, isn't it? You look at verse 1 and the last verse of the psalm, they're the same. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's existence is never up for debate or in question in the Bible. While you can read the Psalms and you'll see struggles like, God, why do you stand far off? Why aren't you listening? Why are you silent? Those are, there are those kinds of struggles expressed, but never a doubt about the existence of God. The existence of God is assumed in the Psalms and throughout the Bible from God's revelation of Himself through His creation, through the prophets, and through the law. The Psalms declare God's existence, they declare God's power and His authority, and these declarations serve as the basis for what we've done already this morning, praise and worship. They serve as a basis for our faith itself, and they serve as a basis for us to make petition of God. Now, I don't know if you looked at the verse 1 carefully, but you see it says, O Lord, our Lord, and in most of your Bibles you'll see those words are actually slightly different. The first time the word Lord is used, it's all capitals, right? And then the second time, it's just capital L. The word Lord comes from two different Hebrew words there. The first one where it's all capitals, Yahweh, Jehovah God, the great I Am, the self-existing being from whom nothing else, without whom nothing else would exist. Moreover, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the covenant keeper. The merciful God, the merciful God of Abraham, who promised blessing to Israel and blessing to all the other nations through Israel, fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So that's who he's speaking to, Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Then the second one is Adonai, another Hebrew word. In sum, it means Almighty God. The sovereign over all creation, including man. In the rest of this verse, David declares something very important about God. Namely, that God supersedes and is far greater than anything he created. Now, the creation is great. It's awesome. It's amazing. But God 
has set his glory above the heavens. This is of great importance. Many people in David's day made the mistake of worshiping creation. They worshiped, they had gods of the sun and the moon and the stars that they worshiped. Some people do that today. We have Mother Earth and Mother Nature, and we hold it as though it's a deity. Sometimes, some of us. David worshiped the Creator. He was in awe of the creation, but he worshiped the Creator. The Creator is greater than the creation. I remember when I was a boy, my grandmother used to point things out. Trees and mountains. And uh, the, more, the, the more amazing to see that it was a rainbow or a waterfall or a beautiful plant or flower, she would say, see that? My father made that. My father made those. I think that's kind of what David is saying here too. He's in awe of the creator more than he's in awe of the creation. But this reflection of David on the greatness of God's creation and the awesomeness of it to behold, it also gives him pause, causes him to reflect thoughtfully on a very important question. You see that question there? Why does God care about man? Why do human beings matter to God? It's a logical question, isn't it? See, he says in verse 3, When I consider your heavens, which continually declare the glory of God, which continually proclaim God's glory, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, he's saying, God is way up here. God is beyond our comprehension. All creation is subject to God. God has all rule and authority at His disposal. That's who God is. All of creation is subject to Him. God is awesome beyond description. And it's in awe of God's creation, in awe of God's awesome power and position, that David asks the question that you see in verse 4. What is man? What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. The more we reflect on how great God is, the more that question comes to the forefront. How great is God? How great is God? Think about this for a moment with me. You know, at Maple Root Baptist Church, when we talk about spiritual things, talk about attributes of God or characteristics of God. Oftentimes, I quote Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple Computer. When he first introduced the first Macintosh computer years ago, there was a photo of him on a magazine called InfoWorld, and he was pointing to the computer, and he goes, insanely great. And so I use that phrase a lot about spiritual things. Insanely great, that God would love us. It's insanely great. In fact, I use it so often, they gave me coffee mugs that say, God is insanely great. And so... They, if, if, if you were from Maple Root here this morning, you might expect me to say, God is insanely great. That's how great God is. But I'm not going to say that this morning because insanely great doesn't even begin to capture it. There are no words to capture how great God is. God is greater than insanely great. We can't even begin to comprehend the wonder of His creation let alone comprehend the Creator Himself, can we? You know, a billion light years is nothing to God. 
There's no bigness or vastness about the universe or anything else that overwhelms God. You know, that's how they describe our universe, you know. In light years. Like, where's the next star? How close is the next star? It's light years away. What does that mean? Yeah, measuring like in yards or miles or meters or kilometers. Light years. I don't even know what that means. You know how fast light travels? 186,000 miles per second. That's more than seven times around the world at the world's widest point. At the equator, more than seven times around the world in one second. Wow. You understand that? Planes are fast, aren't they? You want to go somewhere fast, you take a plane, right? Compared to a car. If you want to drive to California, it takes a long time. You fly, get there. Planes are fast. But how long would it take a plane, a modern jet, to travel the distance light travels in one second? I can tell you. 372 hours at 500 miles per hour. That's 15 and a half days nonstop. To go the distance light goes in one second. And we measure our universe in light years? No, not just light years. Billions of light years. They say the expanding universe is 14, at least 14 billion light years in any direction. Meaning if you wanted to go across the diameter, it would be 28 billion. Come on. Light years? How far? Because I haven't asked. Do you know how big a billion is? Forget light years for me. You know how big a billion is? How would you like it if I gave you $1,000 today? Be nice, wouldn't it? How about if I give you $1,000 tomorrow too? Be nicer. How about $1,000 a day, every day, until you have a billion dollars? Now here's a question for you. If you got $1,000 a day starting the day that Jesus was born, at what point in history would you have reached a billion dollars? You'd have to wait 700 more years, $1,000 every day. Take 2,700 years to get $1 billion. And we're talking about a universe that we measure in light years, billions of them. Wow. God's creation is awesome. It's not too big for him to understand, and it's not too big for him to be every place at one time. Omnipresent. And do you know what else? Nothing is too small for God. Isn't it amazing how when we go in the opposite direction, there's an entire universe, it seems, that we can't see. I always think of Horton Hears a Who, you know? But what if there was a dust speck on, on the dust speck? Right? Horton found the dust speck, and there's a whole civilization there. But what if one of the creatures on that dust speck found a dust speck, and there was another civilization there? That's kind of what happens when we start going small. We can't see with the naked eye. We have to use a microscope. Are you impressed by nanotechnology? I am. Nano. You know what a nanometer is? A billionth of a meter. Wow, you need a billion of them to make a meter. If I gave you a thousand of them every day, it'd take you 2,700 years to have a meter. There's a whole world of stuff going on there. And you know what? God's not impressed by it. He created it. 
atomic particles. And, I mean, we benefit from it. You like your smartphone? It's because of nanotechnology that it can do all those things and pack more power in as the days go by. We, we have yet to begin to know what's coming next. God is not impressed. You see, he doesn't need a microscope to see it either. And he doesn't see, need a telescope to see the furthest star or the furthest galaxy. No matter how powerful the telescope, no matter how powerful the microscope, we're still just at the beginning of understanding how great God is. Sometimes we're irreverent because we don't think about how great God is. That's why people fall to their knees and fall on their faces in the presence of God because he's great. David was thinking about how great God is. And so he asked this question in this psalm. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It's a good question, isn't it? When you hear all this stuff, it can make you feel insignificant. We're puny in the whole scheme of things. Some people wonder, where, where do we fit in? That's what maybe David was wondering. Where do we fit in? It's right to ask when you think about the awesomeness of God and the vastness of his creation, why should God care about us? I don't know exactly why. But the good news is, if you read the Bible, you'll know this to be true. The good news is, God does care about us, doesn't he? God loved the world so much. It doesn't mean the planet. It means the people. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. Do you ever get tired of hearing that? The most popular verse in the Bible? I don't get tired of hearing that. That's wonderful news. Makes me, it reminds me of what the, the uh, doctors said I had a serious medical condition, and I was scheduled for some additional surgery. And the morning that we were supposed to go down to New York to the hospital, I got a call. I said, call the doctor's office. And I talked to his research or his uh, assistant uh, medical professional. And he told me, you know, uh, they can't, there, there's a, a change for the better. They can't find cancer anymore. And so I said, well, let's just have the operation anyway as scheduled because of what the, show, what, what the um, biopsy showed, that there's still stuff there, and at least make sure it's taken care of. He said, no, the doctors canceled the operation. And I said, well, that sounds like good news. He said, it's not good news. He said, it's fantastic news. That's how I feel about the fact that God cares for us. It's insanely great news. It's wonderful news. It's beyond description news. God cares about us. God cares about you. That's what the Bible says. Look at what it says here in verse 5 of Psalm 8. You made him man, mankind. You made him a little lower than the angels, or some versions say a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. That word translated angels or heavenly beings there, you'll maybe be surprised to know it's the word Elohim, the Hebrew word that generally is used to refer to God. 
So it would not be incorrect to translate that verse, you made him a little lower than God. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? I'm sure it was to David. Because, see, in verse 4, when he says, what is man and the son of man? That's a Hebrew word, enosh, that elsewhere describes man as a weak mortal being. So David is looking at himself and others as weak mortal beings, but then testifying through the Holy Spirit that God made us a little lower than himself, a little lower than the heavenly beings. What was David thinking about as he realized this? Humans may seem puny and insignificant in the awesome vastness and complexity of God's creation, but what David is realizing as he writes these words, I think, as he's drawn into worship as he writes these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is the reality of man's position in God's creation. See, the reality is that human beings are the crown jewel of God's creation. That's what the Bible says. It says it first in Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26. Listen to these verses, 26, 27, and 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Isn't it interesting? Psalm 8, it doesn't say we were made a little higher than the animals. It says we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. We weren't made a little higher than the animals. I love that. We're not just the result of some evolutionary process, some evolutionary chain of events. No, we were made in the image of God to rule over His creation. That's who we are. David affirms that. Look at verses 6 through 8 here of Psalm 8. You made Him, man. You made Him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under His feet. All flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Everything. Humans are special. No other creature is made in the image of God. But we're made in the image of God. Isn't that great? It's insanely great. Human beings are set apart from all creation. Every single person in this room, every person you know, Regardless of how dysfunctional they may seem, regardless of who they every single person is stamped with the image of God. And that's how we should see them. God sees every person as someone worth dying to redeem. Yes, we're fallen. Yes, we're corrupted by sin. But each of us, as a human being, is created in the image of God. That's incredible. Because we're created in God's image, we should treat each other with dignity, shouldn't we? But sadly, I was thinking about this as I read this psalm, 
Man has failed to do what God created him to do, by and large. God has created us with free will. And we choose to go our own way. We disrupt what God had for us originally. Humans throughout history have committed atrocities against one another. It's a clear part of the biblical record. Did you ever wonder why those stories are in there? They're part of the record that shows what fallen man fell to. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that we're not on our way to utopia. Can try all we want, but we're not closer now than we were then. Sad to say, left to our own devices, we'll continue in conflict. Person against person, nation against nation. Both the historical record and current events attest to this. The history of man's inhumanity to man is not promising. Since Adam and Eve first disobeyed and sin entered the world, we all inherited a sin nature. Conflict has been the rule, hasn't it? War has existed almost continuously, and some people say the 20th century was the bloodiest yet. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I know it was a bloody century. If you just look at genocide, think about that. The intentional desire to wipe out an entire ethnic group or nation or religion. If you just look at genocide in the 20th century, more than 18 million people killed at the hands of ruthless dictators and others who for no reason other than who that person was, what their ethnicity was, decided they shouldn't live. Sadly, so far, it doesn't look like this century is going to be much better. But here's the good news. That's why Jesus came. God became one of us, didn't he? Isn't that incredible to think about? And he solved the problem of sin by living a perfect life. Jesus fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements. And then he took God's wrath for my wrongdoing and for your wrongdoing, he took it upon himself. He could, the righteous Lamb of God, because he fulfilled God's righteous requirements. He died for us that we might live for him. See, that's the ultimate fulfillment and the ultimate meaning of Psalm 8. It's really about Jesus and what he did for us and what he's promised for us. And as the church... Our call is to fulfill that promise, to be a light in the world, to make a difference. You see, I'm not just making that up about Psalm 8 and Jesus. That's what the book of Hebrews says. If you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, you can see the words. We're not exactly sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but he wrote about Psalm 8. In Hebrews chapter 2, starting with verse 6, the writer says, There's a place where someone has testified, What is man? that you were mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, that's the application of Psalm 8. It says there in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. That's what Jesus did for us. See, human beings are special to God. God made us in his image. And he made a way for us to be redeemed, that Jesus might taste death for everyone. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That's who we are if we place our faith in him. See, Psalm 8 reaffirms for us the special place that humans have in God's creation. Hebrews 2 reveals the full meaning of this testimony as God's plan to redeem us was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God has made human beings the crowning jewel of his creation. And though he created us with the freedom to disobey his commands, and we all have, he always planned and purposed to redeem us. It's always been God's heart to bring us to himself. It was always God's plan to provide Christ. You can see that in 1 Peter. He says, before the beginning of creation, that's when Christ was chosen. Before the beginning of creation. It's always been God's heart that we should turn toward Him. He never takes our freedom away from us, but it's always been His heart that we should turn toward Him and away from sin and away from violence. In fact, when the Israelites were about to enter the Promised Land after 40 years in the wilderness, the book of Deuteronomy is basically Moses' kind of recounting all their trials and travails and, and challenges and encouraging them to follow God and to put Him first and not to sin anymore. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, he reviews the Ten Commandments. And then after that, the people say, we will obey. And God is pleased to hear that. And in verse 29 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, God says to Moses, what the people have said are good. And then he says this. Here's, he shares his heart. God says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, that it might go well with them and their children forever. That's what God's desire is for us. That our hearts would be inclined to fear him and keep his commands, that it might go well with us and our children. Conflict is the natural way of fallen man, but the way of God is peace. Though in our freedom he lets us fail, God takes no pleasure in our failure. It's always God's heart to redeem. It's always God's heart that we might find peace in him. In fact, it doesn't matter how bad you've been. God stands there with open arms saying, come in. Come to me. Sometimes people think, well, you know, you might be so wicked that God would desire to just stamp you out. But you can go look at Ezekiel chapter 18 and listen to what it says. It's the Lord speaking. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? And the answer is no. 
The next line says, Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And further down in that same chapter of Ezekiel 18, God says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. God made us special, and His desire is that we know Him, and that we worship Him, and that we have a fullness of life in us from Him. We have a special place in God's creation, and we have God's promise for the future. What is His promise for the future? That one day, this Jesus, this same Jesus who died to make a way for us to be made right with God. This same Jesus is coming back, isn't he? The same Jesus who died to save us will return, and all who trust in him will rule with him in his coming kingdom of peace. God has a place for you there if you trust him for your salvation here. Will you repent from your sin and trust Him today? If you're already one who trusts in God, one who knows Jesus as your Savior, will you recommit yourself to living for Him today? That's my message from Psalm 8. God loves you. Trust in Him and live in confidence, knowing that He loves you knowing that you're special to him, knowing, knowing he has a purpose and a plan, and knowing that one day he'll return, Jesus will return, and all of those of us who trust him will become part of his ruling kingdom of peace. Isn't that wonderful news? It's insanely great, isn't it? Father in heaven, we just thank you this morning for this opportunity to spend a few moments in your word. We just thank you for um, not hiding yourself from us, but revealing yourself and I just pray that we would be encouraged to spend more time with you in prayer, more time with you in, in the reading of your word that it might affect the way that we live. Lord, we pray that your power would be upon us individually and collectively as a church. Lord, that we might be a light in a dark place. Lord, that we might be those that bring comfort where conflict exists. Lord, that we might, that we might bring your peace and your hope to a dying world. We thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for giving us this special place in your creation. We ask for your blessing upon us as we leave here today. I just pray for your blessing upon each family represented here. In Jesus' name, amen.